This is the Daily Signal podcast for Thursday, January 17th. I'm Kate Trinko. And I'm Daniel Davis. Well, when it comes to smart budgeting and good spending habits, we don't typically think of Congress. But we do think of businessmen like Mike Braun, who now represents Indiana in the Senate. Senator Braun comes to Washington with a lifetime of business experience, and he brings fresh ideas for reform. Our editor-in-chief, Rob Bluey, and reporter Rachel Del Judas sat down with Braun, and we'll bring you that interview. Plus, First Lady Karen Pence is taking heat for daring to teach at a Christian school. We'll unpack that controversy. But first, we'll cover a few of the top headlines. President Trump is set to deliver his State of the Union address on the 29th, but Speaker Pelosi wants it postponed. On Wednesday, she sent a letter to the president asking him to postpone the speech until after the government is reopened or otherwise to submit the speech in writing. But she stopped short of officially withdrawing her invitation to speak, which she had already extended to him. Pelosi's move makes sense because the State of the Union does give Trump a national platform to make his case for the wall, something Democrats haven't budged in opposition to. And, of course, the president has every reason not to postpone. An effective speech could change the course of negotiations. Andrew Wheeler, President Trump's pick to be Environmental Protection Agency Administrator, had his congressional hearing Wednesday. Unsurprisingly, there were protests. Good morning, Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Carper, and members of the committee. And thank you, Senator Inhofe, for the introduction. I'm honored and grateful that President Trump has nominated me for the position of administrator. Please remove, please restore order. The officers, please restore order in the committee room. Please restore order in the committee room. Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont pressed him about climate change. Scientific community has said that climate change is one of the great crises facing our planet. And if there is not unprecedented action to transform our energy system away from fossil fuel to sustainable energy and energy efficiency, there will be irreparable damage in the United States and in virtually every country on Earth. Do you agree with the scientific community? I would not call it the greatest crisis, no, sir. I I consider it a, a huge issue that has to be addressed globally. Well, what you are, I found it interesting, Mr. Wheeler, you are the nominee to be head of the Environmental Protection Agency. You just, in your opening statement, did not mention the word climate change. Now, how does it happen that the nominee to be head of the Environmental Protection Agency does not mention the words climate change at a time when the scientific community thinks that climate change is the great environmental crisis facing this planet? Should the American people have confidence that you're going to help us deal with this global crisis? Yes, they should have confidence because we are moving forward to reduce CO2. Our ACE proposal will reduce CO2 approximately the same levels that the Clean Power Plan would have if it had been implemented. And we're reducing CO2 from our CAFE standards. And we're also addressing greenhouse gases through our methane program as well. Wheeler is currently acting administrator of the EPA. ISIS has claimed responsibility for an attack that killed U.S. service members in Syria Wednesday. The troops were hit by an explosion during a routine patrol in the northern city of Manbij. The New York Times reports that at least 15 people were killed in total, though those don't all include U.S. soldiers. Prior to the attack, only two U.S. service members had been killed in Syria since operations began there in 2014. 
The attack comes just weeks after President Trump announced U.S. troops would be withdrawing from Syria, though the pace of that withdrawal remains uncertain. While the left acts like abortion all nine months is the most sacred right enshrined in the Constitution, it turns out that that is an extreme view. A new Marist poll sponsored by the Catholic organization Knights of Columbus finds that 75% of Americans think abortion should be limited to the first three months of pregnancy. Even 60% of Democrats agree. And when it comes to Roe v. Wade, 65% of Americans think that if the Supreme Court looks at the issue again, there should be changes. About half of Americans would like to see the court allow states to decide what they want on abortion, while 16% of Americans would like to see the court ban abortion nationwide. Well, the Democratic Party has officially withdrawn its endorsement from the Women's March just two years after the march debuted. Party officials gave no explanation for it, but it's just the latest liberal group to withdraw support for the march after its leaders refused to condemn anti-Semitic remarks from Louis Farrakhan, the leader of Nation of Islam. Three of the march's leaders had expressed admiration for Farrakhan in the past, and co-presidents Tamika Mallory and Bob Bland refused to condemn Farrakhan's comments when given the chance to this week on The View. Other liberal groups to withdraw their support include the Southern Poverty Law Center, Emily's List, and the National Council of Jewish Women. Next up, we'll feature Rob and Rachel's interview with Senator Mike Braun. Want to get up to speed about the Supreme Court? Then subscribe to SCOTUS 101, a podcast about everything that's happening at the Supreme Court and what the justices are up to. We're joined on the Daily Signal podcast today by Senator Mike Braun of Indiana. Senator, welcome. Thank you. You've been here in Washington for just about two weeks now, and I want to begin by asking you to share with our listeners your path to Congress, because in some ways it's an unusual path, having started in the private sector. And uh, how do those principles that you learned in the private sector uh, motivate you to try to change the things then uh, that are functioning or not functioning here in Washington, D.C.? Well, I've uh, signed a term limits pledge when I did make it uh, as a campaign uh, statement. Of course, I will stick with that. Uh, I really believe that uh, and it's happened in gubernatorial races where people have come from the outside and uh, outmaneuvered the odds. Here, it's not been done often at the Senate level, and I don't think ever in Indiana. So uh, I did it because I think we need to get more people that have had real-world experience. It sounds kind of simple and uh, general, but I, I do think you take the money out of politics when you don't make a career out of it. And all I can tell you is I've made budgets uh, on a school board in a state house, and most importantly, year after year in my own business, and accomplished you know good things, and sometimes maybe I'd even call it better than good. But you don't work in the bizarre world of the federal government where you get nothing done and you run trillion-dollar deficits and pile it on twenty-one trillion now in debt. That's I'm going to hopefully weigh in on that. And if I don't make any progress legislatively, I'm at least going to talk about it often. Well, looking ahead into this new Congress and this new year, what are some of your conservative principles and priorities that you want to advance? A couple things. I'm interested in kind of reforming the system in ways that will make a difference. Uh, there is a term limits bill out there, and I think it at least has a sense of grandfathering the people in that to some extent that we need to vote for it. Uh, I think that solves a bunch of problems. Uh, I tried to, uh, 
you know, a campaign that I would not accept a senatorial pension. So I get here, you can't even opt out of it. Uh, yes, uh, believe it or not, and I'm working on trying to make a technical correction there so I can do what I said I was going to do. If not, I would just have to forego it, you know, when I uh, actually, you know, earned it, uh, which I would. Uh, but now, if you do not uh, participate in the pension, you uh, can't. Uh, be on a 401k plan here or use health insurance and I no longer am on my companies. So it was just a bizarro there. And I'm going to try to change that technically and then I'd love to see someday where uh, senators and congressmen do not get pensions. No, nobody else does. Uh, they're almost universally uh, underfunded and you can't support them. Those kinds of things need to change. Um, I uh, don't like the fact that you can lobby almost immediately. I think it's a one-year gap, but you know, I'd like to see that either not being able to do it or a five-year separation so that there's more accountability to how this whole system works. I'm sure that's going to be uh, kind of excruciating for some here that have nestled into here, but I'm going to talk about it. When it comes to things I'd like to see get done, um, we're so polarized on any of the major issues. You don't get one Democratic vote or you don't get one Republican vote. And I'm thinking that with the cost of health care, uh, Democrats, I think, own the issue currently. It was manifested through Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act. It was not affordable. It's falling apart. Um, I took on insurance companies in my own business 10 years ago to lower costs, to make it sustainable. And my employees have not had premium increases for nine or 10 years. I tell people that they just think you're telling a fib. But it's true if you know how to tackle it, put the right systems in place. So I think there'll be some Democrats that listen to that. How do you do it? Uh, infrastructure, we took on that hard issue in Indiana, uh, passed a long-term road funding bill that you know keeps our bridges and roads in repair and adds some. But we are a state that's lives within our means so we can afford to do it. Uh, passed a regional infrastructure bill that helps local areas like mine initiate a road project and help pay for it to control your own destiny, not asking for everybody else to pay for whatever you want to do. I'd like that to rub off here. Infrastructure, healthcare, and basic reform. You have so much that you want to do. Yeah. I want to ask though, how has the partial government shutdown affected your start to the 116th Congress? Well, at the speed they operate here, it's not going to make a lot of difference. Uh, I have to almost slow my metabolism down to, you know, be uh, at a rate that's even close to what it was like as a business owner or a state uh, legislator. So we will get through that. Uh, we're simply uh, in my no budget, no pay bill that's out there uh, would say that if you don't you know, get a budget done within a year with all that time to prepare for it that those of us that are here don't get paid. So uh, I'm hoping that uh, has some uh, uh, leg to it. But no, it, it's there's plenty of other stuff to learn. Uh, you know, I'm going to be one that uh, is going to speak up on the stuff I know something about and try to learn a lot more about things I don't know. Uh, but it was just like being a state legislator. Uh, after we accomplished long-term road funding, which was a big deal to Southern Indiana, and was able to get a regional infrastructure bill passed that we've got teed up in our area now to uh, talk about a road project we've been talking about for 40 years. 
I hope to do a few of those things and believe me, six or 12 years will be plenty of time to see if that's going to happen. So as of Friday, we're now in the longest government shutdown that we've been in. What are your thoughts about where things stand with Democrats and how they failed to work with Trump to open the government? I think the reason it's extending a little longer than any before is because 75% of the government is funded. Um, Here, there are going to be some services like TSA and others that, you know, might start to suffer that will have real consequences. I think Democrats are in a tough spot in Uh, I'm not one that likes to read a poll every time I need to see what's happening, but I think there are more people now that view border security as a big deal than what there was a year ago. And the president and Republicans are asking for nothing more than what almost every Democrat agreed to just a few years ago, and at a magnitude level a lot higher than $5.7 billion. You uh, obviously coming from the private sector, I'm sure, have had your share of negotiations. Yep. What is your take on how these negotiations are playing out between President Trump and Congress? Well, I think a lot of times negotiations have more nuance, subtleties to them. Here, I don't think it's very nuanced. Uh, if you believe in border security, which apparently Democrats don't now, um, even when it comes to spending money outside of a barrier or a wall, uh, which they all said they would be okay with that, you know, very recently, I think that it's, again, part of what ails DC is things get so political and you leave a real problem out there uh, like border security unattended to because in one case, uh, you know you need it to have border security and national security to some degree, and Democrats now don't think that that makes sense. So, You just mentioned the importance of border security to national security. Was this a big issue for your constituents back home? During the entire campaign, through the primary and the general, uh, border security, the cost of health care, people actually worried about the integrity of Medicare and Social Security. Uh, were even with jobs in the economy. And jobs in the economy would normally be above all three of them. That's because jobs in the economy are doing so well. And conservatives need to do a better job of explaining how good tax reform has been and how it's benefiting people across the board and companies. I challenge business owners every day. Share You're sending less money to the federal government. If you're successful, share those benefits with your employees. I'm glad you mentioned that issue because obviously as a successful and winning candidate, you were able to break through in terms of your communication. What advice do you have for other conservatives when talking about issues like tax reform and some of the benefits that have uh, have come from that? My first piece of advice would get out there and communicate. Um, I did a podcast with uh, Major Garrett that um, was nearly 50 minutes and knew up front that it was going to be no uh, editing. It was just, let's talk. And uh, he uh, indicated that he has trouble getting Republicans or conservatives to do it. And I can see why, uh, because a lot of times you're set up for a gotcha moment, but uh, you need to know how to avoid that. And if somebody's doing it, you know, kind of tell them, hey, you want to have a real discussion? Let's uh, be a little better in your presentation. But um I think we've got to do that. When it comes to tax reform for conservatives and for the average American, uh, it's more than crumbs. But for it to really hit home, 
I think you're going to have to do what we did in my own company and what many did early on is invest in your employees to the best you can with better benefits, higher wages, so they don't look to government to do it. And that's a failed promise if you think you're going to go there and get anything done that you're going to pay for. So Friday will be the 45th annual March for Life. Why do you think this event is important and how do you think it's played a role in the pro-life movement largely? So, uh, you know, I was... um, been a pro-life proponent and ran on it, Uh, you know, was endorsed by the Indiana Right to Life, National Right to Life, and Susan B. Anthony, they knocked on, I think, close to half a million doors for me in Indiana. It's because it is important. Uh, I think that uh, I've also know it's a divisive issue, and uh, I think we need to keep, we need to stay out there and talk about it, um, not be afraid of the issue. Don't demonize anybody along the way that disagrees with you, but we can't be shy about any of the things we believe in, whether it's uh, right to life, whether it's border security, uh, or uh, you know, defending why keeping more of your own resources makes sense. So uh, we just need to articulate it in a way that shows that we do have the ability to see the other point of view and try to you know, find some ground where it's a win-win. This is uh, the first time in a number of years that Indiana has two Republican senators. What um, priorities do you have for the delegation uh, for the people of Indiana that you're hoping to uh, to you know focus on in terms of their constituent needs? Well, you know, it's really nice when you come from a state like Indiana that has probably got one of the best business environments in the country uh, where I live in southern Indiana. And in fact, Jasper just got named as the uh, one of the best towns in the state, if not the country, to you know live there, do our low cost of living, and you know ha- higher than average incomes. And you know Indiana is a place that I think uh, will keep doing well uh, because it's based upon certain principles that make sense. Uh, live within your means. Be very uh, engaging when you try to get enterprise into your state. Uh, be a real champion of everybody having a great opportunity to succeed and do it all in a context where it's not uh, falling apart, you know, as you try to do these good things. And that's the difference between a state like Indiana and the federal government. And I think a lot of it will be to make sure that the federal government doesn't impact a great state like ours in a way that takes us away from how well we've performed. You briefly mentioned earlier the uh, no budget, no pay legislation yeah. that you introduced with Senator Manchin. Why is this legislation so important? To me, it, uh, you know, one of the things that uh, I said I'm going to focus on reforming a few areas. I think when you're an institution that's got a 15% approval rating, that's just one of a few things that would lend towards that. Um, and I think that you've got to have real consequences other than just lip service or saying that, gosh, I wish we got a budget done. Um, All I know is as a CEO of my company, if I couldn't find ways to, you know, reduce costs uh, in such a modest way, it's all it would take to make this to where we get our budgets in order. Uh, and, And the fact that we don't get one done when, you know, that's a primary responsibility of the Congress, you need to have some uh, repercussions if that didn't happen. So I think there's plenty of notice over a year's time if you don't get it together. We can't keep running the government on continuing resolutions 
and a structural budget deficit that you know we're now losing uh, close to a trillion dollars a year that we finance uh, on top of 20 21 trillion dollars in debt that's got to change and finally senator you know at a time of divided government in washington democrats controlling the house one of the focuses that is on the senate it certainly comes in as mitch mcconnell says the personnel business yeah. you have a number of appointments uh, for the trump administration the attorney general the epa administrator both coming before the senate this week uh, a record number of judges yep. confirmed last Congress with a whole lot more awaiting. What can you tell our listeners about that and the role that the Senate can play over the next two years when it comes to judicial nominees and other appointments? Well, we have at least two more years where that you know will happen, and uh, I think that has gotten so political as well. Uh, we know the consequences if we don't win the presidency in 2020. You know, we'd be in a defensive mode. Um, and you know it'll go the other way. Um, I think that you know that is something you take advantage of when you've got uh, the position to do so. Um, I want to quickly uh, segue to an area where we talked about it a little bit earlier, but I think the real pivotal issue is going to be healthcare. Um, I think conservatives have been too apologetic uh, for the industry. Um, you know, I had to deal with it myself, and I think there's going to be some real uh, common ground uh, if we can take that issue, which is I think the Democrats own, uh, Republicans and conservatives have got to focus on how we lower costs. Uh, the Affordable Care Act did something I've always believed in. You should never go broke because you get sick or have a bad accident and built that into the plan I offered my employees and I held premiums flat for 10 years. We've got to get that done. I don't think Democrats really care about controlling costs other than if it just happens. Uh, and I think that if you do migrate to a one-payer system like they think will solve that issue, uh, we won't like it. Uh, you may in the long run lower some costs, but I'm going to think the quality of health care will suffer too. Well, Senator, I'm glad you brought that up because I had a conversation with a couple of freshman congressmen last week on the House side, yeah. both of them who were enthusiastic about health care as well. It seems there is an appetite among Republicans and conservatives to return to that issue. There is, and I think conservatives and Republicans are often seen as defending business, and I think we defend it for free and open markets and robust competition. And it's what's made the country great. It's a productive side of our economy, uh, of entrepreneurs and enterprisers. The healthcare industry doesn't fit into that classification in the way that it should. It's been shrouded with uh, so much uh, lack of transparency uh, through an insurance system that doesn't make sense anymore. And the industry, which I'm going to really encourage, you need to fix these things yourselves or you'll be a part of a one-payer system and you know what the problems are, get with it. I'm going to encourage that and goad them to do it. Senator, thanks so much for joining The Daily Signal. You're very welcome. Liberals have pretty much cornered the market on 101 style podcasts that break down tough policy issues in the news. Until now. Did you know that every week, Heritage Explains intermingles personal stories, news clips, and facts from Heritage experts to help explain some of today's hardest issues from a conservative perspective? 
Look for Heritage Explains on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. Karen Pence, the wife of Vice President Mike Pence, is under attack from the left because, get this, she's teaching art at a Christian school. Huffington Post headlined an article, Karen Pence is working at a school that bans LGBTQ employees and kids. And the Notorious Human Rights Campaign tweeted, the Pences never seem to miss an opportunity to show their public service only extends to some. Pence spokeswoman Kara Brooks said in a statement to Politico, Mrs. Pence has returned to the school where she previously taught for 12 years. It's absurd that her decision to teach art to children at a Christian school and the school's religious beliefs are under attack. So, Daniel, what do you think? So this is, again, I think another repeating of the mistake that the folks on the left make that sexual orientation is not about identity. It's really about behavior. And that's what this school is doing. And this school has every right to um, have certain ethical code, a certain ethical code that students have to follow. Basically say, you know, you're paying into this school, you know, you're choosing to be part of this community. And so we want you to agree with our ethical standards. That's why we have a separate school. That's why, you know, the government's not paying for this school is so that we can have our own community that, you know, runs according to its uh, standards. And uh, that means that, you know, yeah, one of the things that one of the standards is that, you know, we don't believe homosexual, you know, uh, activity is moral. That's just part of our faith. Also, uh, you know, sex outside of marriage between straight people. Um, You know, I actually went, I think obviously you did too, Kay. I went to a Christian school, uh, uh, not in high school, but in college. Oh, for college. (laughs) For college. And, uh, you know, we weren't allowed to. Yeah. Yes. You know, things like uh, same sex relationships uh, were were not uh, same sex sexual activity was not allowed, but also, you know, straight couples weren't allowed to do that. Well, so would we say my school banned straight people? We weren't allowed to drink alcohol. Does that mean we banned people who enjoyed alcohol? Like it wasn't about banning the person. It was just about acknowledging that our community has the right to have a certain ethical code that is in line with our faith and with our conscience. Right. And, you know, when I was looking over the school's um, uh, rules, as you know, I think Politico had them. Yeah, it did seem very much that if, you know, a high school student or a teacher thought they were um, homosexual or gay, but, you know, was not acting on that, it seemed like that wouldn't be a problem for the school. And I mean, that's the distinction that you were bringing up that and, you know, I think. You know, there are celibate Christians who never get any coverage by the media, but who feel that, you know, the way that um, Christian values work, that because they are same sex attracted, they need to be celibate. And they've chosen to live that way. And I I mean, nothing I read in the schools things meant that someone like that couldn't teach there. Right. And also it's, it's a bit removed anyway from Karen Pence because she's just teaching there. It's not even like right. she's, she didn't make these rules. Right. She didn't make the rules. And it's not even like she's even voicing an opinion, although tacitly, like she does endorse it because she's going to teach there. But um, again, like it's unacceptable opinion these days. I also think it's interesting, you know, uh, we should turn this around a little bit because this is a Christian institution where you would expect, okay, at least there you can do your thing as, you know, people of faith uh, without interference. But what, you know, the secular left is really wanting to do is exclude uh, people like Karen Pence from 
uh, it seems like people who hold her views from being first lady. That's the implication, I think, of what this, you know, she's, they're saying, oh, you're first lady. So you shouldn't, you shouldn't be working at a school that holds these views. I think the implication there is that if you hold those views, you're not allowed in this secular space. Right. And I think that's. And we've seen that with yeah. like, remember the, the CEO of Mozilla mm-hmm. was fired, uh, Brendan Eich, year, a few years ago, because just because he had donated money to the Proposition 8 which, uh, uh, passed in, in California, California. <laughs> which passed. Yes, it passed in, in, 2000, was, uh, in 2008 when Barack Obama said he believed in traditional marriage. Right. And Prop 8, of course, was saying that marriage was between a man and a woman. And uh, as I recall, the reason it passed in California was um, in large part due to minority voters who were coming out for Obama, for Obama. but were also um, very against uh, legalizing same-sex marriage. Right. Yeah. No, I think it is disheartening to see that, like, you can't hold these views, um, you know, again, which relate to the activity, as you point out, a lot of Christian um Schools and colleges also limit the activity that uh, straight couples can engage in. And um, those principles don't just extend to LGBT people. Um, But, of course, they never talk about that. And, you know, I think it's also, I mean, this is sort of the always elephant in the room, but um, a Muslim school would presumably have similar things. I'm not aware of any woke Muslim schools that disagree with their um, religion on these matters. And uh, yet you can't imagine that if Karen Pence had taught at a Muslim school that she would be subject to this kind of attack. Right. I mean, this is, you know, th- this is this is what we have to accept in a plural society where not everyone's the same. I mean, we want diversity, right? I mean, that, that we, if we want diversity, then we have to accept that there's going to be some contradictions in our society. Some people are going to have their views and they're going to set up their own institutions and they're going to adhere to that. And that's what actually diversity means. Um, but it seems like the, at least the journalists who write these articles saying that, you know, school bans gay kids, uh, you know, don't seem to be very interested in that kind of diversity. Yeah. And I am sort of struck by, and you brought this up at the beginning, this whole idea of identity and it being so wrapped up in your sexual orientation. And I do think that's something fascinating that's really, I mean. A lot of gay people don't buy that, by the way. Right. They'll say, I'm gay, but that's not really the core of who I am. Right. But I think it's also interesting how there's been such a push to do this in the past couple decades. And, you know, it's like such a big thing. And I always love it slash hate it when celebrities are like, oh, I'm coming out as bisexual or something. It's like, is this like what? Like, I I don't care. (laughs) I don't understand why you think this is such a fundamental revelation about you. And, um, you know, I think I've mentioned it before, but a couple of years ago in the now defunct uh, Weekly Standard, Mary Everstadt had this article that I thought was really interesting about how um, in this era where families are so fractured, where so few people have religious adherence, that people are looking for any kind of identity to latch themselves to and be Mm -hmm. like, this is who I am. This is my deepest self. And I think you really see this with sexual identity, that people really think it's yeah, the most fundamental part about themselves, like the truest part. And it's just, of course, it is part of you, but it's such an odd thing to focus on exclusively. Yeah. I mean, at the very least, I think what we as a country have to realize is that, um, you know, people shouldn't have to deal with, put up with with this in the public square. Mm -hmm. You know, people like Brendan Eich and uh, Karen Pence and others shouldn't have to deal with it in the public square. But at the very least, they should they should be able to go to their private Christian school and live according to their their conscience. Well, and of course, remember the infamous case, and I think it was fourteen 
uh, the Indiana Pizza Shop. Oh, yeah. There, yeah. it was all hypothetical. Oh, yeah. And the, the owners said they wouldn't uh, they wouldn't cater a gay wedding for pizza. Like, I mean, one, yeah, this situation never happened. A real gay couple never came to this pizza shop. And yet there was such a national uproar over this that um, I don't know if they're still in business or not, but it certainly looked dicey there for a bit. Yeah. And they had massive protests. And, um, you know, I think it is. Telling. I mean, you know, I think every there's so much division on so many issues in the United States. Like we have to coexist with people who disagree with us on a variety of issues. Right. And I do think it's interesting that on this particular issue, people really struggle to coexist um, from the left on. They really, you know, I mean, I think Tucker Carlson has a line, you know, that it bothers the person in Brooklyn that someone in Alabama disagrees with him. Right. But the person in Alabama is sort of like, well, the person I mean, in Brooklyn, it's, whatever. It's not even coexistence. It's right. allowing someone to exist somewhere else in their own corner. Yeah. But that's just abominable, apparently. The fact that you have a Christian school that thinks has different ideas about sexuality anywhere is an absolute scandal. It's right. And I mean, of course, you know, she's teaching art. She isn't <laughs> teaching sexual morality. I know. To these art, students. Right, 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 right. Art. Um, yes. Well, thanks so much for listening to the Daily Signal podcast brought to you from the Robert H. Bruce Radio Studio at the Heritage Foundation. Please be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play or SoundCloud. And please leave us a review or a rating on iTunes to give us any feedback. We'll see you again tomorrow. You've been listening to the Daily Signal podcast, executive produced by Kate Trinko and Daniel Davis. Sound designed by Michael Gooden, Lauren Evans and Thalia Rampersad. For more information, visit DailySignal.com.